Hello, and welcome to IndieWire's Very Good Television Podcast. I'm Liz Shannon Miller at Lizlet on Twitter. And I'm Ben T. Travers at Ben T. Travers on Twitter. And hello from uh, from the mi- from the beginning of July. Apologies for missing you guys last week. We uh, celebrated. I don't know. Apparently, America is a thing now. I mean, if if not now, then when? Really, it's 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 definitely a thing. Yes, America's great. We celebrated it. We took a couple of days, and we also wanted to come up with a really good, interesting topic to pre- to present to you guys, and. You know, sometimes sometimes great ideas take time, you know. Yes, and, and I mean, this one really did. It came in the nick of time. We were really looking for something perfect, and then up in our inbox shows, well, I, I don't even know how to describe this. Maybe, I think, Liz, you should give this kind of recap of what's going on here. Okay, so... There's a show that you've probably, if you if you pay attention to any sort of highfalutin television coverage, you've probably heard numerous television critics bitching at you about how you don't watch Rectify, and that makes you a terrible person. Um, I I know this because I am actually I've seen I think the first episode of Rectify, and I have I should I should watch more because I know I'm a terrible person for not doing so. Why? Because the highfalutin TV critics like Ben tell me so. I do. I say it all the time, and it is one that I say with a tinge of guilt just because Sundance TV isn't a channel that a lot of people get, nor do they make it immediately accessible online. So once they come out on Netflix or you know the other streaming services, then yeah, I'll get on you and be like, it's time to watch Rectify, guys. You, you, gotta, you have no excuse anymore. And the first two seasons are on Netflix now. So yes, my excuse is n- no excuse at all. You're just a bad person, Liz. That's all there is to it. I feel like we should clarify that the scratching noise is Ben's cat rubbing against the computer. She's in a very affectionate mode right now, and I apologize for that, but if you could see her, you'd see how cute she is, and you want to keep her. Yeah. That's the only reason I wanted to mention it, so that you can imagine while we talk about this show about tragedy and murder and sadness, that there's an adorable kitten rubbing up against the microphone. The world is indeed a good place. It is, except maybe not. I don't know. Anyways, so what? What's really interesting is that uh, Rectify for, for to promote the season three premiere of Rectify, which is tomorrow Thursday. Uh, Sundance has released a. Well, it, they, they're calling it a podcast, and they promise actually that it will be available on iTunes soon. Uh, it, which is it, it, that? And having gone through that application process myself, I know it takes a little time to get on the service. But what Rectify has done ha- is they have dis- taken a cue from, of all things, the NPR mega hit podcast Serial. And as you may, as you probably followed last fall, last fall, uh, Serial was, of course, this true crime tale. It, true crime investigation into the murder of a young woman uh, several years ago and uh, the, you know, reality of life for the young man who it was eventually convicted of killing her and all the complications were related to that case. And it, what it, what's so interesting about it is it had such a very specific, it had a very specific style and tone to it. There was a lot of questions regarding how the the primary journalist behind the podcast, Sarah Koenig, 
was potentially a biased reporter and she put her bias into the story because uh, the podcast functioned as a subset of This American Life, which takes that approach in general to journalism, etc. Point is, Serial became something of a cultural phenomenon and in part because it was very, it was, it had a very distinctive tone and style. You, you, you knew immediately when you heard just like the first few beats of the opening music exactly what you were in for the, for the next half hour to an hour. And I mean, Ben, you, you, and you never watched, listen to Serial, correct? That's correct. I've heard many clips and, and interviews and read a lot about it online because, like you said, it's just one of those things that infected our culture and became something of a talking point. But sadly, I was kind of overwhelmed with podcasts already at the time, and I haven't gotten around to it and felt kind of behind. Anyway, I haven't heard it, but I have heard the new Rectify version of that theme, I guess. Yeah, what, Re- what Sundance did was they created essentially their own take on Serial with the Rectify story, like it, as if Sarah Koenig took on the cause of the main character of Rectify and his case and investigated it to some degree um, in the same manner that she investigated the case of Anand Saeed. Yeah, and it, 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 it's only 16 minutes long. There's only one episode, as far as I can tell and as far as I can read from the press release that came out. And I don't know, I, it, it's an interesting development, but the purpose of it, as stated in the press release and as stated at the end of the podcast is to get people caught up on Rectify, and I don't necessarily think it does that. I mean, I so the other the other element is that while I did listen to all of Serial, again, mentioning, I didn't, I have not really watched Rectify. I know the premise, I've read a lot about it, and so listening to it for me, it basically, I mean, what, what the podcast does is it does two things. It establishes some basic facts of the case, and to the best of my knowledge, it doesn't really it doesn't really establish a lot of character stuff but it does set up essentially the one major plot element that seems like it's driving a lot of season three yeah and it, 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 it definitely feels like something where if you weren't inside the family like the show takes you if you weren't you know watching this develop on a day-to-day basis this is kind of what you would hear so it's like the serialized version of Daniel Holden's story the main character in rectify and, and that aspect of it is interesting, but it also doesn't necessarily get into the nitty-gritty of what's going on in Daniel's life and why he's making the decisions that he's making, because they're not always related to the more accepted notions of what you know a formerly imprisoned convict or former convict, you know, expunged convict would do. Uh, it's much more related to kind of what's going on with his with his family and with his with his self outside of uh, prison and discovering who he is, which the show digs into in a much different way than this podcast does. So to me, it's, it feels almost more like a way to hook new viewers with a basic overview of the story uh, rather than just replace watching the first two seasons. And I mean, there's I feel like there's value to that, especially for me. For coming to it as someone who really is interested in the show, but hasn't had the chance or hasn't made the chance made the opportunity to watch it. But what's but the counterpoint of it is what you're saying, which is that I feel like the thing I know about Rectify, the thing I understand about it, is that it's a show 
where it's so driven by tone and performances and just general execution that a 16-minute plot summary, A, it's hilarious that the entire 16 episodes can be basically summarized in the 16 minutes, but also I feel like the real draws of the series are maybe lost on me by just enjoying this podcast. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a tremendous point because most of what people talk about when they talk about Rectify is the tone and the visuals and kind of the distinct world that you're brought into because his mentality is what's being represented on screen more than plot, more than story. It's very much about what's going on inside his head and gaining different access points to that. Um, and kind of going to what our larger topic is in, in this discussion that we, you know, we've been working on for so long and coming up with such a brilliant just talking point, uh, this podcast does work as a great marketing technique, which uh, kind of relates back to, to the best way of promoting a TV show. And in kind of selling it for people who've already seen the show as something to listen to, that would, uh, that would bolster that idea of it. And then also selling it to people who haven't seen it as, hey, you like cereal, maybe you like the show, and you can access it in the same way by listening to a podcast. It is a valuable marketing technique. So, so there's, there's things to appreciate outside of it when you get into the show and things to appreciate it from people who maybe haven't seen it before. Yeah, certainly uh, from, for, as the Rectify newbie here, I mean, the fact that this is something I haven't seen before in, you know, however many years I've been following television coverage, this sort of approach to, this sort of approach to promoting, promoting a new series is, or not a new series even, but a returning series is, you know, ridiculous. It's like we're parroting somebody else's story, parroting someone else's format to, you know, sell you on our TV show. And, and there's a, there's this niggling part of me in the back of my head that's kind of like, you know, Serial was about real people and, you know, a real a real person died as a result of what happened or whatever did happen. We don't know, of course. The point is, it's it's so weird. It's just, I, I, I sent it to you, I think, with just the words, this is so weird. Listening to it was surreal, especially because they nail the tone and style of serial so well in executing the podcast, which again speaks to their, their abilities to execute things. Uh, and Oh God, Ben, I'm so sorry for saying that. <laughs> well, pun unintended, but I can definitely see your side of things coming at it from someone who's never seen rectify before because, and I'm not saying that you were necessarily offended by it, but, you know, someone who became, if there was someone who became so invested in Serial because it was such a real thing and they want to see this case overturned, they want to see this person set free, you know, then they are getting a parallel from a fictional TV show where the investment has to be less, then it would be a little bit, you know, disturbing if, you know, only weird, but definitely off kilter. Uh, but coming from it from somebody who watches Rectify, the emphasis is so strongly placed on the character that it feels like a very authentic representation of what's going on in the show. Like, the podcast works to serve it in that sense. I didn't find it that strange. I found it very accessible. I found like it, I felt like it was very much in line with the tone that's been set already by the show, even though I have, you know, I didn't get into Serial, so I, I may not have the right perspective from what the marketing people are even looking for. I mean, and the thing is, this is probably meant more for me than it is for you. 
Yeah, absolutely. And then that brings up the question of, it, is this a successful strategy? Is this something that people would actually warm to if they've never seen the show to draw in more viewers for it? Well, looking at promotions for shows in general, what I've found is that there, I feel like there are two types of promotions for things. There's, oh my God, please watch this. We don't think anyone's gonna, we need you to watch our television show. We need you to watch it at these following times. Please pay attention to us. Please, please, please. So there's, there's begging and then there, that, I could have just said begging instead of done that drawn out thing, but whatever. Um, it's more dramatic this way. Serial. Um, but there's, there's, there's begging and then there's, oh, oh, do you want this? Oh, well, I guess we could give it to you. Maybe just a taste. Are you intrigued? Are you enthralled? Maybe you want to know more. And it's always fascinating, especially with new shows that don't necessarily have any sort of, you know, cultural awareness when they start out. Like, it's fascinating to see which approach they take. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like we're in the midst of, of some very interesting strategies that people are implementing, you know, the Rectify podcast being only one of them. And uh, the one I'm most eager to talk about is one that I've just been addicted to, in part because we both saw the show so early and we both liked it so much. But the Mr. Robot campaign for the USA show is just a phenomenal example of how marketing can be truly effective if they understand exactly what they're doing and they aim towards that execution. In that, I mean, I feel like these people knew the show wasn't typical for USA audiences. They recognized they had to go outside of that access point, outside of the USA Network watchers, and draw in a crowd from this whole new group of people and also get them to overcome the stigma associated with USA shows that they're kind of the blue sky, boring, uh, take it or leave it uh, kind of bland entertainment. This was a much more serialized engagement. And, I mean, by they, they took this show to film festivals, they released it online to make sure that you know anybody who was curious about it could see it. They had a very aggressive marketing campaign that used swear words as well as just some pretty cool trailers. Uh, they won some awards, which obviously helped out a lot. And, I mean, it worked out. There's a second episode after releasing this first one you know, all over the place. The second episode, as it aired on USA, got a boost in viewers. Like, more people tuned into that than the first one, which seems like it means uh, people who watched it online or saw it in a different context were willing to seek it out on the network and keep with the show after that. So, I mean, that's one of my favorite uh, examples of recent marketing techniques that is extremely effective and also very engaging for the people it's being marketed to, us. I mean, I think what's, what's really cool about what Mr. Robot did is... I think I think there are two two things I find really cool about it because you're you're totally right to call it that campaign. It's easily one of the more successful of the year so far, especially launching a show from scratch with a relatively unknown star in for a network that doesn't necessarily have that kind of push. And um, the dog next door agrees with me, of course. Um, Animals episode, a very good TV podcast. It's yeah, it's a very, it's a very, it's a very uh, nature, uh, animal kingdom friendly one, uh, except for that dog who may die someday by my hand. Anyways, uh, sorry about that. Point is, point of Mr. Robot is two things I think are really important with it are the fact they released it online because this was a show deliberately, deliberately aimed at bringing in a young tech-savvy audience. The show itself works really hard to make sure that everything it does stacks up. And, I mean, 
Uh, I talked once uh, at a recent panel I moderated featuring the creator, Santa's Mail. Uh, he said he has a, an anonymous consultant. He has anonymous on his side. The other thing I really like about the Mr. Robot campaign is that they also tried a lot of different little things. Uh, I think you know they've you know they had this like week long like get rid of your debt uh, campaign to in conjunction with E3 and the streaming network Twitch that was like, hey, if you sign up and you show a code, you might get 50 bucks in a PayPal account. Like, they were just giving away $100,000 to whoever signed up. And they also did this one really cool Facebook tie-in promotion that, uh, you know, really, really took what you can do with Facebook integration in a new direction and also perfectly fit the themes of the show. Um, yeah, that one was really fun. The whole Times Square engagement post aspect of it was something that I wish would have gotten more play, you know, simply from our end. But uh, yeah, I, I thought that was a really fun idea. Yeah. So there's stuff like that. I mean, so yeah, I think like it, you, identifying them as one of the not, you know, breakthrough campaigns of the year is a really smart, is really smart because they they have really made something out of what had very low expectations. Yeah, and it's something that when you look at the show in its construction and even after watching the first episode, you know that the, this marketing campaign is the correct marketing campaign for it. But I could also see them going a much more traditional route and just courting the fans that they already have, pushing the idea of you know Christian Slater being on a TV show again and kind of the funnier elements of it, and then you know making the hacker aspect of it minimalized to appeal to a broader audience. Instead, they chose wisely to engage in this new way to attract a new audience for a rebranding effort by USA Network. And I mean, I, I'm, I probably talk about this for even longer, but uh, needless to say, it's working and it was a very well executed campaign. I do want to say, like, I don't think releasing, um, releasing a show online early is always the best solution for no. getting, getting, getting the word out. But I think when the show is so tech focused and tech integrated it's going to making it very easy for that audience to access is very important yeah there's, there's been a few recent examples i mean there's been a lot of shows where they'll release the pilot online early they'll release maybe even more than that and it doesn't always translate to to new long-term viewers or even viewers who kind of wait and and then get into it uh, a little bit later on but, I mean, last year, I remember they, they released The Leftovers on a few different platforms for its pilot, and a lot of people thought that it was a disappointing early entry, and they were citing all these low ratings. And then later on, when people were able to binge watch it on HBO Go, the numbers really spiked and turned into a pretty big hit, and that's what earned it its second season. Even more recently, uh, they had the, the show Ballers on HBO, which... Uh, they debuted on Facebook. The first episode was uh, streaming on The Rock's Facebook page, and it actually earned 5.6 million views just from the Facebook page, which is an incredible total. So that kind of exposure seems to be really helping the show and finding the right avenue to kind of get people to notice that it's online, to know that it's free, and to want to watch just that one episode knowing they can't see all of it, because that's another issue facing the, the kind of online distribution of that that. I will say uh, the key key words that you mentioned in there regarding ballers were the Rock's Facebook page because that's again oh. an example of going to your audience. The Rock has fifty million Facebook fans, 
Um, the fact that he only got 5 million views is honestly like, wow, guys, you follow The Rock on Facebook and you don't want to watch at least a couple of minutes of his new television show starring him? Yeah, and I mean, to be fair, this isn't saying how long they watched, just that it got 5.6 million views, so it could have been, you know, just the first couple of minutes could have been the full episode. But in contrast, uh, that same night, The Brink premiered, and they also released The Brink on Facebook, but it's short of a million views. And that's in part because you know, Jack Black, Tim Robbins, they don't have that same kind of following. And it was released on the Brink's official page instead of their pages. So it's it's a little bit different. But yeah, I mean, the strategies that are being implemented nowadays and the different ways to kind of reach out to people and get exposure to shows, it's constantly changing. And, and some people seem to be tapping into it better than others. Great. So what's another example you have in your back pocket there? Well, I... I mean, there's some traditional examples. Like, I feel like the X-Files reboot is getting a pretty traditional push. Just this week, they released that 201-day marathon, which was a different idea in the sense that the marathon was promoting more just like you could do it. There's 201 days left until the new X-Files premieres, so... I mean, everyone's everyone was so confused by that. You Just the idea of, like, wait, okay, you, so what you're telling... You're just telling me that it's 201 days until the episode... In, until until the, 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 the new show comes back. This is, this is essentially what that trailer was saying. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it is very confusing because Fox, the network, is all over that trailer, but they never say, watch it on Fox. They just say, it's 201 days, start your binge viewing now, uh, you know, enjoy it. And then at the end, there's a thing for the DVDs, but... At the same time, at least they're, that was also how they released the first footage of the new show. And they didn't make a big deal about it. They didn't even say it in the trailer. You kind of had to spot it and be like, oh, my God, that's that's new. That was new footage. And then that kind of circulated online on its own, which is an interesting thing. But otherwise, they've been used, they got a big upfront presentation. They got uh, a lot of tweets from their star, from Duchovny and Julian Anderson. And, and well, the that, tweets thing is new, and they have an official Twitter account of releasing the quote-unquote first official photos, that sort of thing. Yeah, and that is a new aspect of it, not necessarily across all entertainment. This is definitely something that's been done before, but it's still new, you know, related to the last, related to since the X-Files went off the air, that's for sure. Um, but in the, in the other spectrum in the way that you don't want to market your TV show to anyone, AMC is just the most annoying network when it comes to to marketing materials. They have been releasing these 10-second, 15-second teaser trailers, which aren't even teaser trailers. They're not quite motion posters, which is another somewhat annoying trend that's out there right now. At least... They're just snippets of nothing. They don't even. You, some of them don't even have footage from the actual shows. They just kind of hint at a, a feeling or, or or a tone that's to come, and then show the title sequence and the release date, if that. And it's just kind of a way to trick online publications and to trick audiences into you know seeking out this content. And then there's no satisfaction from it. They're, they don't reveal anything, and they're just not very interesting. So honestly, it. It always left a bad taste in my mouth, and, and it was something I really just got sick of quickly. Hey, Ben, I know you're totally unprepared for this, but do you want to do a dramatic reenactment of the Fear the Walking Dead uh, teaser about the flu shot? <laughs> I don't think I'd have any lines in this. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, your, your line is, um, wait, I thought you were out sick today. Oh, oh I, thought, I thought you were out sick today. 
No, I got my flu shot. End of trailer. <laughs> zombies. Yep. Yep. So apparently, they they confused the zombie outbreak with with flus, with the flu virus. Well, that uh, seems like a, a normal thing to do. Right? I mean, clearly, you re- what you read into that is they're really trying to sell the angle on the show. They're trying to really try to sell the show's angle that it's starting slightly earlier in the timeline than the original Walking Dead. So it's going to eventually catch up, but it it does it does have elements that will ser- serve as technically a prequel, albeit set in a completely different city. Um, so, I mean, it's yeah, those trailers are awful, and there goes there go the buzzsaws. Um, What's interesting about those trailers too, it, it, to me, it's the way that they're presented. It's it's the way that they're released, as if there's some sort of event or something that you really need to see. Whereas this X Files thing, which admittedly is you know a montage of classic episodes and classic clips all the way through the you know the majority of the trailer, and then the last you know seven or eight seconds, you actually see new footage. That wasn't pushed by Fox or by anyone as being like, look at the new footage of the new X-Files show. It was, look at the marathon. Whereas the Better Call Saul and the Fear of the Walking Dead teasers are pushed as, this is the first teaser for Fear of the Walking Dead. Check it out. It's going to be so exciting. And then it's obviously not. Like, it's just something that you, that the hype is already overwhelming the content. And that's the opposite of what you want to have when you're getting ready to watch a new show. So what we're saying is that AMC, I mean, clearly I think AMC maybe has just taken too much from Mad Men's example of ta- telling very, very little across all of its promotion. Yeah, yeah, and, and, I, and the thing about the Mad Men aspect of it was those, you know, next week on trailers were designed by Wiener to, to tell nothing. He was contractually obligated to show them and to have them in there but he didn't want to give away any of these big secrets. These teasers aren't, you know, the next week on. They're, they're something that are supposed to get build anticipation for the show. And even Mad Men would release full trailers before the season came out. They wouldn't be that, you know, illuminating. They wouldn't spoil a lot of stuff, but they would set some sort of style and present it in a certain way that were authentic to what you would be expecting. Uh, better Call Saul and Fear the Walking Dead stuff just is... It feels very lazy to me. It feels almost like it was meant for people who still like fine videos where you just keep watching it on a loop, but nothing really happened. Oh, oh God, no, I just realized that that might be the point, that it might be like they're creating these things to play across multiple platforms, including Vine and Instagram. And now I'm sad. Yes, it's not, it's, it's, it seems like, it seems like, it seems like something that I could believe was a good idea if I was an older marketing executive being sold on this new social media, you know, hoop, hoopla, and and didn't quite understand exactly how it worked. I, I, I don't know. I, it's incredibly annoying. And actually, using an example near and dear to my heart that recently happened: the Creed trailer, the movie Creed, which just came out. Oh wait, this movie. Tell me more. Is this a, is this related to any sort of major boxing franchise of films? Just the greatest boxing franchise of film ever is the Rocky franchise, and this trailer was incredible, and it was a beautiful trailer. It was two; it was almost three minutes long. It didn't give away a lot of the plot. In fact, we still don't know exactly what's going on in the movie. We don't even know who his nemesis is or if he's even going to have a big final fight. We just know that Creed's son is fighting, and he's, he uses Rocky as his trainer eventually. 
but that's about it, even though we got this beautiful, long three-minute trailer. But the point, going back to what we were talking about before, Sylvester Stallone released a clip of that trailer on his Instagram, which limits, you know, the length of their videos uh, in the app. But it was a completely different trailer than what they'd released online. It wasn't a segment. It wasn't a 15-second segment. It was a completely new 15 seconds that they put on Instagram. And that's how it should be. If people want to seek that out, they can find it, and it's in that new form, and they can see it in its shorter version. But it's not just the same content you can watch on YouTube for 10 seconds, and then you see it in your Instagram feed, and then you see it on your Twitter feed, and Vine, and all that other stuff. So there's definitely ways to go about doing this which are proactive, healthy, and engaging, and then ways that seem to, to devalue the work that you're supposed to be promoting. Yeah, the only the only real defense I have for what AMC has been doing with its trailers is that it is, uh, it you know they are we're talking about two properties that are tied to major franchises for them. Better Call Saul was clearly building on uh, the Breaking Bad brand. Fear the Walking Dead is so clearly tied to Fear the Walk to, to the Walking Dead. It just added an extra word to the title. <laughs> Yep. So, I mean, really in the long, I mean, for Better Call Saul, it made less sense because Better Call Saul had a harder uh, field to plow, to, so to speak. But the fact is, it's all done. Uh, yeah. Or it was it was very frustrating in in the lead up to Better Call Saul, certainly looking for real a real glimpse at what the show would be and just seeing uh, getting it was I mean, it would, to call it a tease was is to say that it was at all enjoyable like some of the some of the trailers were visual had visual visually interesting components but they weren't compelling and they didn't reveal character and that's what you look for ultimately from anything like this yeah i mean to to sum up basically a tease is basically a promise being made it's, it's saying we're going to give you this snippet that will make you want more, and in this case, it just made me want less. It made me want nothing until you're ready to give me everything. And to be fair, teases can be promises can be broken, but you at least like give the implication that that's not the case. Yeah, you. I mean, you were talking about this online the other day, where you know there can be great trailers, just tremendous, incredible trailers, and you know once the movie comes out, it may be a terrible movie. It may be a great. movie. Maybe great movies make the trailers look better in the end because you remember how great the movie was, and then you go back to the trailer. But these kind of things stand on their own until the you know product is actually released, and they have to be done well, like they just do. And, and I, I I really feel like they're missing the mark of late with uh, with what AMC has been pushing. Yeah. So I mean I think there's but there's so many good examples, and certainly we're not going to see any shortage of them in the next few in the next like especially in the next. Over the next month or so, it's going to be... I think we're going to be seeing a lot more stuff because we've got two major events. Uh, tomorrow, tomorrow, this week is the commencement of Comic-Con, which will undoubtedly lead to a lot of new trailers, a lot of, you know, last year, uh, Game of Thrones released their blooper reel at the exact time they premiered it during their panel, which was really fun. The, the, the blooper reel, I wasn't at the panel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the real was the highlight, even if you were at the panel like I was. Yes, uh, this year. They, so this year, I get this year we're in opposite mode, and I hope I hope it plays out just the same way. Um, <laughs> though, yeah. So the you know, 
blooper reel, uh, you know, so, so we're going to see all sorts of promotional materials like that for Comic-Con geared towards fans. And then TCAs uh, are coming, and God bless them, because they will bring with them a whole bunch of uh, early looks at, uh, you know, a lot of the great shows. Um, some of which hopefully will be released online. TCAs tend to be a little stingier with that sort of thing. I mean, I don't even think we ever saw the three-minute trailer that uh, NBC showed for Aquarius at TCAs online ever. Yeah, they almost seem to be missing out some opportunities with that, and I understand why you might want to keep it in the room for a certain amount of time, but we talked about that Aquarius trailer for far too long for no one to ever be able to see it. <laughs> you grabbed my shoulder and shook me. You were so excited. It was, it was a great trailer. I know. I was like, I was, I was, I, I barely noticed cause I was quivering. <laughs> no, it's, it is I, that trailer. If that, if the show had been as an awesome as that trailer, uh, we'd be king, crowning it King of Hollywood. It was a great trailer. Um, for a show that, you know, was at least solid enough to earn a season two. So congrats to that Aquarius. Yeah, I'll be ready to see your next Sizzle trailer next year at those upfronts, and hopefully it'll be just as good, and hopefully you release this one online. Yeah, that, that's a pro tip from us to you. Um, so, <laughs> you haven't had enough of them already. Oh, gosh. You, you, I mean, we know you crave our advice, Hollywood. Crave it. But uh, speaking of things we crave, uh, Ben, what was the best thing you watched last week, or the last two weeks, rather? Well, we touched on it a little bit already, and... Um, Honestly, the best thing I've been watching is a Thirty Rock binge, just kind of in my downtime. When uh, whenever I whenever I've got the urge to see a little Liz Lemon and Jack Donaghy action, and that's still just incredible. But the most relevant best thing that I've watched of, of late is uh, Rectify season three, which uh, was a big improvement. Well, not a big improvement, but a solid improvement that, with a lot of promise towards uh, an eventual future that's better than where they ended up in season two. I thought season two was a little bit bloated. Uh, they moved up from six episodes to ten episodes. I didn't feel like that did the show a lot of favors. Um, they're back down to six this year. They seem to be more proactive. They seem to be moving uh, in a much quicker pace, which is something to be said for a show that's known for its slow, methodical pacing. And they still have that, but you can see the decisions that are being made have consequences that occur much sooner. They don't seem to be getting a little lost in their dialogue and, and Kind of the secrets within the family. Uh, so I would encourage anyone who has access to Sundance TV to keep up with Rectify Season 3, and if not, I'll try to remind you again once Netflix uh, picks up that third season. Good for you. What about you, Liz? What have you been watching? Um, I think the best thing I saw, I've seen recently is, it's the weirdest damn thing, and uh, I've, I've written my review, and we'll, you know, hope, you know, we'll have it either posted with this, with this post, or we'll have it soon. Uh, but HBO is doing a little thing called Seven Days in Hell, uh, which makes no sense. Well, I mean, it makes sense plot-wise. What I'm saying is that it's a 45-minute HBO Sports special that's actually a mockumentary starring Adam Sandler and Kit Harington from Game of Thrones. And it's it's got it's it's you know it's it falls pretty heavily into the mockumentary uh, style. It doesn't have a ton of it doesn't have a ton of substance, but it does have some really great performances, some really funny jokes, and I mean I I, I just said performances, but I mean across the board everyone's really fun. You know, kind of taking it off the wall character and really pushing it for whatever, however few minutes of screen time they have. 
But uh, Kit Harrington's amazing. I mean, he's just really funny and really committed to the part in a way that you wouldn't have expected Jon Snow from Game of Thrones to be. And uh, I mean, the thing, if it had been any longer than it is, or if they tried to make it into a regular recurring series, I don't think it would have worked at all. But the fact that it was this tight 45 minutes of just weird, weird comedy really worked for me. And I love that it's under the HBO Sports brand. Like, I mean, it's not, I, I don't think it's officially there, but they open with the HBO Sports logo, which just cracks me up every time thinking about it. It definitely seems like a new project for HBO, just in the sense that it's not supposed to be anything more than that 45-minute fictional documentary. It's not necessarily a movie. It's not a miniseries. It's not something that's going to be continued necessarily. And uh, I, I like that you like Kit Harrington so much in this, if only because when you see the trailer and you see Andy Samberg back there with his wigs and playing tennis and doing ridiculous things, it makes sense. That's fitting. That's something like, of course, we expect Andy Samberg to do that. But you don't necessarily expect to see Kit Harrington, so you know that he's got to pull it off if the show is going to work. Yeah, I mean, I think it helps that Kit, Harring what, what Kit Harrington is given a pretty specific character to play with a lot of a lot a lot a lot, a lot to do and it's not like he's being it, Andy Samberg is like okay you put Andy Samberg in a funny wig and make him do some funny things and it's going to work like he's he's a pro with with Kit Harrington like he's given a lot to work with and it works on a level beyond that not to say there's a competition between them as to be the best or funniest in it, because they're both doing very different things. But I'm just saying, Kit Har I was not expecting to like Kit Harrington's performance as much as I did. So now that I've totally overhyped it, go enjoy it and then tell me I'm wrong. Go enjoy this minor 45 minute one off HBO Sports HBO presentation. There are far worse things you could do with your time. True. Speaking of which, Ben, what's the next thing you're looking forward to? Uh, the next thing I'm looking forward to in a week that's actually got a lot of. I you know, highly anticipated TV coming back. Masters of Sex, Ray Donovan, The Strain. Um, actually, I think all those come back on Sunday. So yep. I'm actually looking forward to Chris Tucker Live on Netflix. Interesting choice. I would not say that I am a fan of Chris Tucker's in the sense that, well, if only because I don't know how he'd have fans. Basically, you're a Rush Hour fan. Maybe you like Money Talks, but... He hasn't done a lot, so for him to do a stand-up special seems like a very ballsy move to make for someone who seemed to only be concerned about cashing in paychecks for the longest of times, and still somewhat related to that. So I'm very interested to see what he does with the special, and the fact that it's on Netflix makes it a lot easier to access, and hopefully a lot easier to discuss with people. Um, and honestly, if he even does the slightest of impersonations of his character from The Fifth Element, I will be the happiest clam in the world. So, I am looking forward to watching Chris Tucker live. I mean, it doesn't he come from a stand-up background? I I mean, this is why I would not say I'm a Chris Tucker fan. He, I think he did. I haven't seen it. I don't think it's famous in any way. I've never heard anyone really talk about it. So, he's basically just that guy who was in a few hit 90s movies and faded into the ether until he did Silver Lines Playbook, which everybody really liked, but nobody could explain why he did it. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm excited to see just a new product from this guy who I always thought was very funny and entertaining. 
And uh, if it, if the, if he pulls it off, you know, here's hoping that leads to more actors who maybe aren't doing enough of late, or at least enough respectable work of late. Cough, Eddie Murphy, cough, to do something similar. Yeah, I mean, stand up. It, it, I'm curious how. I'm also curious how it'll play. We, we should. We should perhaps look into it. Investigate. I will. I will investigate with my eyeballs. And what are you going to investigate with your eyeballs next, Liz? So the thing I'm really looking forward to next is BoJack Horseman season two. Season two is coming back next week, uh, and you know anyone who checked out the first season knows that it was a real. It was just just a weird but beautifully beautifully almost beautifully sad sort of animated comedy which you don't get enough of honestly but it's the sort of thing that netflix has done a really sort of weird original content that netflix has done a really good job of supporting and so it's going to be really exciting to see what directions it gets taken next yeah season two i mean after the end of season one i i have no idea what to expect from it really i mean the, the trailer laid out a scenario in which bojack is going to be trying to be more of a positive person, but, you know, how long that lasts could be an episode or half an episode or, you know, six. I mean, it's so, yeah, I'm very excited to see what this obviously very creative and, you know, I mean, not groundbreaking, really, uh, television program is going to do. Plus, Lisa Kudrow plays an owl. Lisa Kudrow is an owl. I mean, I don't know if we need it, ever knew we needed to see that, but we totally do. As soon as I heard her voice... From the perspective of that owl, I was just, it was such a perfect fit. I was like, how did we not have this, you know, years ago? This seems so obvious now. You know what drives me crazy is I don't know who does the voice of Andrew Garfield in the first season. Yeah, I looked that up a few times, too, because, you know, with Naomi Watts being Naomi Watts and all the other celebrity voice cast they got in there, I kind of assumed it was him, and it wasn't him, and that, that let me down a little bit, but... We should yeah. we should send it, start sending an email all day to Netflix saying, look, we we don't know we know it's not public knowledge, but can you just tell us so we'll stop looking it up every time? Yeah, and then if you could get you know Andrew Garfield to come in and and do it next season, that'd be cool too. He hates Mondays and lasagna though, so I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, might be hard sell. Anyways, uh, so I think that about wraps it up for us today. Uh, we want to apologize, or I want to apologize, Ben may not care, but apologies for the majors, for the major, hopefully minor sound issues that we had this week. We're going to look into other solutions or figure out better things uh, for, for next time. But we really wanted to make today happen because we really wanted to talk to you before it got any later and or before Comic-Con killed me, which it might just do. Who knows? Well, here's hoping it doesn't, and you're right. No, I will not apologize for any sound issues. I don't apologize for my cat when she causes severe allergic reactions, so I'm not going to apologize for this. But uh, but I hope you all still enjoy this wonderful episode as much as Liz and I did in giving it to you. Yes. So if you want more of us in the pros way, uh, go to IndieWire.com for all of our television news reviews, interviews, coverage. Uh, and you can find Ben on Twitter at Ben T. Travers on Twitter. And you can find Liz on Twitter at Lizlet on Twitter with an I and an E. I'm glad that we said on, we both said on Twitter repetitively in case you weren't aware that we were talking about this social media service called the Twitter. I, I mean, I hadn't heard of it until last week, so I need to repeat it a few times just for my own sake. Twitter. 
It's another pronunciation. It's an, it's the European version. I don't know. Anyways, thank you guys so much for listening. And until next time, keep watching television. <laughs>